Welcome to Unobservable, the podcast where we answer the big questions by engaging current scientific, religious, and philosophical issues through the metaphysical lens. I am your host, Brent Constantine, and today is Tuesday, the 13th of March, 2018. Today we will be looking at the famous five proofs of Thomas Aquinas, what I call the principal Tomian argument. Let's not waste any time jumping right in. Thomas Aquinas long ago laid out one line made up of five distinct and successive points for philosophical proof of God's existence. While the Thomian arguments are not comprehensive, understanding these proofs will give you a very solid foundation for your apologetics. The Thomian argument and the arguments that make up the principal argument follow herein. The first argument what he would call a proof is called the proof from motion. And basically what this first proof states is that whatever is moved is moved by another. This can be thought of as potentiality to actuality. Something at rest has the potential to move, but does not or cannot until the state of potentiality is realized, in which case it becomes a state of actuality. Whatever is moved must be moved by a prior actuality. However, this change cannot regress infinitely because to do so has the resulting fallacy that motion never began at all. Therefore, there must be an original mover, and this is what everyone refers to as God. Interestingly enough, this touches on to something I have been working on, which really stems from Ghazali's own work several hundred years ago. And I'm calling this the infinity argument, and while I won't break it down in this episode, it's relative because the basic premise re- revolves around the two options for describing the universe in terms of its age. Either the universe is finite or the universe is infinite. There's no other two options. There are no other third option. There's no other 15 arguments that could be made for the age of the universe. It's either finite or infinite. There's the only two options available to us. And so basically that gives us an an indicator on how to proceed philosophically. And again, I won't break down the whole argument here, um, but when we consider uh, uh, when we consider Aquinas's argument, it's clear that a regression of events backwards through time cannot continue infinitely. And so there must be an initial mover which sets this uh, progression into a motion of succession. Now I'll say that one more time, there must be an initial mover which sets the progression into a motion of succession. Again, this unmoved mover is what we would call God. Some philosophers today would argue that infinite regress is actually possible, and this is also sometimes argued in in like the mathematical fields, um, which would be based on certain set theories. But I'll deal with those objections in a later episode, um, which would be an episode about the infinity argument and that would be when i'm ready to actually address all that and kind of delve into it that's not this episode having said all of that it seems to me to be patently absurd to suggest that there must be or that there must not necessarily be some initial event to set the universe in motion something which is made even more concrete by the scientific data regarding the big bang theory right because there needs to be an initial explicator to the motion of the universe. there, The universe is in motion, so why is it in motion? That's kind of the idea behind that first proof. Now, 
the second proof that Aquinas presents is what I, what I would call the proof from efficient causation or the proof from an efficient cause. And basically how this proof goes is that every effect must have an antecedent cause. This is different from saying that everything must have an antecedent cause, as then God himself would require a cause. This is a law which refers only to effects as an extension of the non-disputed law of non-contradiction. It is formally true because it is definitively true. Effect cannot be an effect without a cause, and a cause is that which produces an effect. Cause cannot be causal unless there is that which the cause has produced, what we would call an effect. A self-existent being does not violate any law of reason, but an uncaused effect does. Every event thus requires a prior cause, a series of regression, which again cannot continue ad infinitum, because such regression requires the existence of a causeless effect, not to mention that an infinity is impossible to actualize, something I would argue again in, in, a, in a later episode, uh, more more detailed argument, I guess. Um, but herein, the original cause would be what we would call God. Right, so what we are seeing here is Aquinas's natural progression based on the line of thought as was glimpsed in the proof from motion. If there must be that which sets the universe into motion, then the setting into motion of the universe would be what we would call an event. This, of course, would then lead one to ask, what caused this event? This is to ask, because there is a universe which has been caused to be in motion, what is it which has caused this effect of the universe being set into motion? I'll say that one more time because it's a little bit tricky. Um, it would lead us to ask what caused this event. This is to ask, because there is a universe which has been caused to be in motion, what is it which has caused this effect of the universe being set into motion? Aquinas rightly points out that there is no logical contradiction in a god existing without a cause. Because the reasoning is not that everything has a cause, which produce the effect of that thing, but rather that any effect must have a cause which precedes that effect. Right, so a god simply existing prior to anything, to all of this, does not violate this because logic would dictate that eventually there needs to be a termination point. Right, when we look backwards through time, when we're looking for my observation point here in 2018, backwards to the beginning of the universe, there has to be some sort of termination point for this for this causation, right? This causal relationship. And then God would be that termination point. So I'll say it one more time. God is necessary because logic dictates that there must be a termination to the infinite regression of effects with precedent causes. Thus, God is what Aquinas called the uncaused cause of the universe. Aquinas came up with some really brilliant names for God. Um, I really like his terms, the unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, and so forth. I think they're really great because the philosophical insight just in, in those two words is pretty incredible when you really sit down and, and look at what is actually going on behind the scenes um, in those terms. It's it's pretty incredible. He's an an incredibly brilliant man and I, I'm not a Thomist by any means I definitely um, don't agree with everything um, that 
that Aquinas wrote, but certainly I think the five proofs are pretty strong, pretty strong philosophical arguments, though there's some Platonistic sides that can be uh, taken. There's, like I said, the mathematical sets, which have come into kind of like an argument against uh, the invalidity of uh, infinite regression and so on and so forth. But um, I really don't think much of that holds up, mostly because I, I don't want to affirm Platonism. I don't think it's philosophically sound, really. And uh, I'm not sold on, on the, the fact that just because infinities can be used as... How do I say this? I don't want to say that because infinities are useful in mathematical sets, that therefore an actually infinite thing can exist, right? Because from my point of view... When you talk about actualizing an infinity, what you're really talking about is is trying to hit some sort of fictitious roof, right? Because if I take one step up a up a staircase and I count the number one, and then I take another and I count the number two, and another and I count three, and so on and so forth, for as long as time goes on, eventually I'm just going to have a very large probably incomprehensibly large number of steps that I've taken, but I won't have an infinite number of steps, right? I'll have a potentially infinite number of steps. So I digress, but I, I just think it's interesting and worth noting that that Aquinas was was pretty brilliant in some of some of what he's put forth here. It's I don't I think it's totally it it's totally fallacious to say that be, just because these were arguments from a while ago that they don't have any real power because they definitely do and i think proofs one and two are, are super ex just really extremely strong um and I, I think as as this podcast progresses you'll see some more of that so let's dig into proof number three uh proof three says um basically deals with the idea of a necessary being um so i call it the proof from necessary being and basically it'll go like this Existence consists of things which have the possibility of being and not being, things which are contingent, which is to say things which are not necessary yet do exist. These contingent things involve generation and degeneration, or decay. Both of us were at one point non-existent. Stating that things could not exist means that either the thing at one point did not exist, that it can at some future point leave existence, or both. Therefore, what is possible to be has the additional implication of beings which can possibly not be. Merely possible beings are not self-existent, again meaning that these beings are contingent and therefore have no power of being in and of themselves. If reality was comprised of things which were only possible, at one point nothing would be in existence. And if that were true, nothing could start to exist, and thus we would not now exist. Because things do exist, something must have always existed. And it follows then that that something necessarily exists. This means that the existence of that thing is not just possible, but rather absolutely necessary. This necessary being then possesses the power of being within itself. This is a being or thing which did not ever not exist. This necessary being would be what I would call God, or what we would know as as God. Now, one could at first glance take this to be a weak argument because it's it's 
it's a little bit wordy um and it's a little bit complex um but once one analyzes the argument it's pretty clear that there's some serious insight here thomas is pointing out that because the universe itself is actually contingent meaning that the universe could be any other way than the way it is now there must be something which is not contingent holding all of this contingency together now i briefly touched on this in the first podcast but this actually approaches the intelligence behind the universe thomas aquinas is rightly noticing the fine-tuning of the universe but through a back door through a sort of roundabout way right because Aquinas is not aware of the incredible fine-tuning of the universe, right? That would be anachronistic to suggest that he was. They didn't have that kind of insight at, at that time. But he is aware of contingency. He's, he's clearly aware that he himself could have not existed, and his parents could have not existed, and all of his friends could have not existed, and all everything around him could have not existed. The buildings, the trees, the water, the food. Literally everything around him could have not existed put in a better way everything at all could have not existed right instead of saying that anything at all could have not existed everything at all could have not existed and and this is what he noticed now if this is true why is it that it all does exist right why does all of everything exist the logic would suggest that something which is not contingent and must exist holds all of the contingency that is in the universe in place. And I'll give an, an, uh, an example here, and, and you can find numerous examples kind of trying to break down these principles for you. Um, I personally like this example just because I think it's kind of fun, and I, it does a really good job, I think, of explaining really what Aquinas is talking about here because like I said the the third proof the proof from a necessary being is is a little convoluted it's a little complex and so for those of us out there who are uh, new to philosophy or or new to theology even um, it might be hard to grapple with this idea of a necessary being and I, I could put it in a number of different ways but you probably hear it on other philosophy podcasts or if you go to school for theology or philosophy or what have you philosophy of religion you will or religious studies you will hear i guarantee you will hear god even in like a general deistic uh context you will hear god referred to as the necessary being and really this is because um god in most of these religions especially in christianity which is what i uh, approach these things what worldview i approach these things um through god is necessary as a reason or as a as a means of explicating this phenomena which aquinas noticed right that contingency is is a real objective truth to reality which would then suggest that it should be really really is unlikely that all of contingency does exist right it would be more likely that none of contingency would exist and so if nothing if no contingent thing would exist then why are we here this would suggest that something is holding contingency in place and therefore there's a necessity for something to be holding contingency in place and that would would make god a necessary being now 
I can kind of phrase it a little bit more streamlined or a little bit better in a, in a more streamlined fashion. So let me let me try to break that down in a little bit of a, a simpler uh, manner. So basically, we'll say it this way. The logic would say that something which is not contingent must exist and... I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. The logic would say that something which is not contingent and must exist holds all of the contingency that is in the universe in place. So let me say that one more time. The logic would say that something which is not contingent and must exist holds all of the contingency that is in the universe in place. What this is meant to say is that one could imagine the universe as a soup, and here's my example. The universe is a soup. And all the contingent beings and things in the universe are noodles in the soup, right? We're the vegetables, we're the chicken, we're the noodles, whatever. What this, what this is approaching then is because we are in a soup, if there were no bowl to hold the soup, everything spills out and dissipates into nothingness. Now, this would lead us to question, what is the bowl that's holding the soup together? because we're here in the soup right now. God is that bowl holding the soup of the universe together. Or rather, whatever that bowl is, is what we know to be God, or what we call God. Right, because people like to throw out, well, I believe in a metaphysically necessary pie that created the universe. Whatever you want to call it, if it's simpler for you to call it a pie, or the flying spaghetti monster, that's fine. But what you're really talking about, what you're really describing when you say that, is god by definition god is omnipotent he's omniscient he's the creator of the universe the unmoved mover the uncaused causer and so on and so forth so when you say if you were to say i believe in a metaphysically necessary pie for example all you're really doing is saying you believe in god so i'll throw that out there as well because i've heard that argument a couple times i think it's patently absurd so what is so beautiful about all of this third proof that we've been talking about is how Aquinas's uh, insight bridges the gap from observation into a priori reasoning about the fundamental truth of the material temporal spatiality which we exist in right because we are here to reason these truths it will eventually lead and now has led of course into the resulting inquiry why are we here to observe these facts while the modern cosmologists want to derail this thought, uh, this thought train by pointing out an observation about our contingent, uh, observing that it should not be surprising to us that we exist in a universe which suits our ability to exist and think. Really, the fundamental issue with this is that the anthropic principle fails to account for the need for something to tie contiguous existence together. Right, the metaphysical necessity as I have taken to calling our God, right? It is silly to suggest that as noodles in the soup, we should not be surprised that there is soup at all. Because this is to miss the point that something is holding this continuum together. Of course, this is to say nothing at all. It's to say zero about the two prior arguments either. You know, for further discussion on this, you can listen to episode one of the podcast, which does a little more heavily with this issue. Um, in which I engage Lawrence Krauss, uh, well-known atheistic physicist, um, uh, an article he wrote dealing with 
with this very subject, the, the anthropic principle and stuff. Um, so I won't get into all of that in here, but it's just worth noting that Aquinas was already approaching these very subjects centuries before we even got there. So I, I just think it's pretty amazing. Now, I hope you're still with me because it is a fairly heavy and fairly complex discussion, but I like to try to make these as approachable as possible um, for the newcomers to philosophy and especially for the newcomers uh, to theology, right? Because it can be very complex. And I, I think that the best method, and I think Aquinas also saw the best method for approaching this subject is to start with um, trying to reason for the general God, right? The general single God that would be appropriate for any sort of deism or monotheism, um, not necessarily Christianity. And I, I, I will do a podcast or two or several uh, later dealing with why it is that Christian theism specifically is true. Um, but I won't deal with that in, in this, and I, I don't think that was Aquinas's purpose either with these five proofs. I, I think what's so valuable here is that it gets you away from atheism, which really is logically incoherent, and we'll touch on that a little bit here in a minute, um, just tangent tangentially but uh yeah it's really a, a sad place to be sometimes because when you really sit down and think about it at best you're going to get a how explicator you're not going to get a why and so we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit but yeah if you want to know more about the anthropic principle and a little bit of the the subjects that deal with that i did a, a a pretty lengthy first podcast to inaugurate our podcast so uh, i would uh, refer you back to episode one and you can engage with that but we're going to go ahead and move on to episode or to episode, excuse me we're going to go ahead and move on to proof number four um, which aquinas would call uh proof from degrees of perfection and this one would basically say humanity can observe degree degrees of goodness and truth and to recognize these degrees, there must necessarily be a maximal standard to which one compares the things. These degrees of goodness are relative only to the absolute. What is the absolute of a thing necessarily is the cause of that thing. The maximal thing is the absolute standard of that thing. There is then, by necessity, something which is to all beings the cause of being, goodness, and perfection. A counter-argument would be to say, then, that if evil exists, God must also be maximally evil. That is, to, that is to address the inverse of what Aquinas is asserting in this fourth principle regarding God and goodness. However, evil is only the absence of good, right? Evil is an ontologically negative property, meaning it has no positive status or power ontologically. And so maximal evil is inherently contingent upon the maximal goodness of God. It is the privation of good which constitutes evil. So really we could think of evil as um, an ultimate negative degree of goodness. And so it is defined only as the negative degree of God. That is to say evil is the lack of the maximal goodness, which is one aspect of what we consider God. So God is this most maximal goodness by which beings understand degrees of goodness to include negative degrees of goodness or what one would call evil. Now the fourth argument is a bit simpler than the previous one. 
uh, previous ones. However, there is an entire realm of philosophy dedicated to the expansion of sim similar argumentation, right? And this, this would be the philosophy of aesthetics. I call this a rudimentary aesthetic argument for God, but that would only be in the direction of perfection of beauty. Um, because really aesthetics is dealing with beauty specifically. In reality, Aquinas is arguing more for the perspective of goodness, right? Morality. Um, what he is trying to point out is that there is must be some sort of objective scale at the top of which sits the objective standard for good against which the human mind judges goodness. Now, if we notice that something which is less good than another thing to be less good, then how is it we notice this? And once we do notice it, why is it objectively true that this thing should be less good, but not plain evil? Or more incredibly, why is a good thing not the absolute greatest thing? Put more broadly, why is it that if there is not a highest absolute standard of goodness, of righteousness, of justice, against which action should be judged, that one can rightly and truly call an action or thing less good, bad, or evil? If there is no absolute standard, then there is not objectivity to our judgment calls regarding this continuity. God, by necessity then, is that absolute standard. This of course opens up extremely, extremely quickly into Dr. William Lane Craig's own moral argument, though to my knowledge, and I do not want at all to misrepresent Dr. Craig, um, to my knowledge, he holds some points of disagreement with Aquinas' argumentation overall, uh, something which you can kind of glean a, a little of in his own Defenders podcast, which is his teaching class, um, which takes you all the way through theology um, and philosophy related to Christian theism. So it's very, very interesting. I highly recommend it. Um, but I'm pretty sure he has some disagreements with some of this argumentation overall. But nonetheless... It's pretty easy to see how Aquinas' brilliant insight began with the first proof and naturally led to these others, right? Because there's there's a uh, uh, a lineage of succession going on here. He's a lineage of, of reasoning, a deductive process that's happening here. Aquinas isn't just making these things up. He's really sitting down, critically engaging with that first that first initial instant, what what caused everything, and then moving forward from that. He's progressing. It's very, very interesting to me how he, how he has arranged um, his arguments uh, deductively. It's very cool, um, and really insightful. Especially once you start to understand that. I mean, think about this. We just bridged all of that into a very contemporary argument, the moral argument from Doctor Doctor Craig, which has only recently become uh, widely known and and um, really debated hotly debated it's a very very recent development so for aquinas to have anything at all to say about that is pretty pretty incredible so we're uh gonna go ahead and move on to his final and fifth proof and uh, i think you'll see how it all ties together it really comes to a a, a strong strong conclusion so Proof number five is the proof from order. There are things which lack intelligence, but nonetheless, functionality, excuse me, functionally operate in a manner which is ordered and purposeful. Things may be non-intelligent, yet act in ways which are both predictable and purposive. Purpose cannot occur accidentally to oneself. One cannot accidentally have purpose, 
This is to say that one cannot have some sort of unintentional intentionality. Design demands a designer. Therefore, things which have no intelligence themselves cannot act in an intentional or designated designed manner unless directed first or designated first to do so by design or by another thing which does have intelligence. A common example is that of an arrow. An arrow cannot shoot itself and cannot aim itself for a target. The arrow must first be aimed and then shot at the target by an intelligent being. A natural example could be that of plant life. Therefore, naturally non-intelligent things which act in intelligent ways must be given that designation, that design, by an intelligent being, otherwise understood as a designer. That being is what we call God. One objection could occur on the basis of chance. However, chance is not a thing which has actualized being and thus has no causal power to do anything. Champ Chance simply describes a set of possibilities, but has no power over such possibilities aside from the capacity for descriptive purposes. Thus, the result is an absolute refutation of chance, which in turn demonstrates an intelligent designer, what we would call God. Now, this final argument really ties all of the prior arguments together. I can't overstate that enough. And this can also be seen in the commentary uh, I've provided here on, on Aquinas' five proofs thus far, right, because all of that has tied together. It's even more apparent in the modern context because we are examining these arguments against contemporary scientific data and concepts, arguments such as the anthropic principle, Darwin, Darwinian theory of evolution, and so on. But it, begin, it again becomes so painfully, painfully, painfully obvious that there is a lapse in expertise on the part of these scientific types who commentate from a supposed non-philosophical point of view, but what is actually espoused is amateur philosophy, not non-philosophical argumentation. Right? What we're seeing is these, these individuals who want to assert that the only truth is truth through science. The only way to know truth is through scientific endeavor. And that's simply false. I mean, that statement itself isn't even a scientific statement. So it, it really just comes out as amateur and oftentimes naive philosophy. And so I, I think it's important as we move through un Unobservable, as we move through this podcast, it's really important to take these notes away and understand that what we're providing here is an introduction. I don't want anyone to go out and, and, and show themselves to be naive like that. I would rather you guys take what we what we talk about here and explore it there's so much content out there for you to go and digest and and which would improve your argumentation on, on these subjects that it's, it's really incredible when you hear something like for example it's been all over the news stephen hawking recently has said oh i know what 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 happened before the big game big big bang i know what happened i know what was there and you'll be so shocked to find out that what he says happened before the big bang was nothing there was nothing there big shock i think it's pretty clear that aquinas even saw that right there was no material time space any of that there was nothing about our contingent reality that existed before the big bang and i i think that's just that's just obvious to any sort of uh philosophically trained individual right anyone who's gone undergone philosophy 101 could probably tell you that so why is it that it's being um 
written about in such a, a raving way well it's because he's a powerful scientist and rightly so he's he's a well well achieved individual but that doesn't make him right about everything he says and it definitely doesn't make everything he says scientific and so by their own statements uh, about how science is the only way to know truth well if you're not saying a scientific statement then it must not be true <laughs> which i think is patently absurd but by their own arguments then that would be how it have to go so i don't want that to happen with any of us i don't want anyone to fall into such naivete so i would suggest that we move forward from these podcasts and really go um, search out some some more uh, resources on these subjects and kind of broaden your horizons but this is good introductory material now my point in all of that really though was just to point out the fact that they are actually doing philosophy and it's going to move forward here in just a second you can see how this would become an issue now in terms of what aquinas is saying in this final proof he's obviously touching upon intelligent design i think that's patent patently obvious it's right there it's plainly observable for us in his argumentation now i want to preface this entire commentary for the fifth argument by saying that even if one grants darwinian evolutionary theory one still runs into the problems addressed by the former arguments specifically proofs one and two right how is it that the mechanism of darwinian evolution was set into motion what caused this initial pool of material from which all life eventually supposedly sprang forth to exist at all clearly they could not have always been this material because this runs into the problem of an eternal universe which itself is impossible because there cannot be a past infinite series of events without an initial cause to those successive events to terminate the chain of regression let me say that one more time because it's it's a little bit uh lengthy clearly there could not have always been this material because this runs into the problem of an internal universe which itself is impossible because there cannot be a past infinite series of events without an initial cause to those successive events to terminate the chain of regression even more so however for the universe to be eternal and for that view to be coherent would require that the universe be the necessary being which is holding contiguous things in place but being that it is possible for the universe to be made up of fundamentally different things or for the initial constants and quantities of the universe to have been set wildly differently than they are now or even more plainly that we could have not existed at all then it logically follows that the universe is not necessary and that the universe therefore cannot be the container which is holding contingency in place right if we think back to the the soup bowl example the universe can't be the bowl and the soup on this on this view this leaves us back at the question of what is this necessary being then and this is to say nothing at all of the fact that darwinian theory and the like are much more akin to something like the law of gravity right the issue there is that laws are descriptions of operations just as theories are possible descriptions of operations they're not causal mechanisms mechanisms in and of themselves and certainly they're not causally potent entities right so these theories and laws do not constitute the things which the theories and laws describe what this is really meaning to say is that there has to be something in place for the law to describe 
but the law doesn't put those things into their places. Likewise, something like Darwinian theory can describe a possibility for the production of life as we know it by a series of events through which life adapts and changes. The theory needs some life, or at the very least some material in place, to begin to describe the chain of events that led to, for example, human life. But the theory doesn't put that material in place, and the theory doesn't even cause the setting into motion of the events which are described, potentially, in the law. I like to call this the how-why distinction, and uh, this is something that I'll touch on pretty, pretty heavily in my first book that I'm working on. Um, but the distinction is so, so important. And what it really points out uh, is that there is a fundamentally different, let me see, there's a different value in asking how something works or how something is, and then asking why something works or why something is. The two wildly different questions. And they, they really operate on two different levels fundamentally. Um, but basically, in this context, it's to say that something like the law of gravity can tell us about how gravity how gravity operates in our universe, but it doesn't tell us why gravity is there at all. Tangent tangentially, it also does not tell us what gravity is, right? It doesn't actually tell us what the thing gravity is. It's just describing uh, how heavy objects would act in relation to one another, for example. Um, so just as Aquinas points out that things which are not themselves intelligent, which operate in an intelligent fashion, cry out for an explicator, so too does intelligent life. A modern adaptation of Aquinas's argument would be Paley's watchmaker argument, which itself isn't super modern, I guess, these days, but I, I still think it's a very valuable argument and fairly, fairly modern. Um, but in, in that argument, basically the, the, the concept is that if one were to stumble upon a watch, one would, by means of systematically observing the various components which constitute the structure of that watch, which therefore cause the watch to operate in a fashion so as to tell the time, rightly one would discern that there was an intelligent mind behind the watch's existence. Likewise, we too should conclude that there is an explicator to our existence. And as Aquinas mentions, the existence of non-intelligent things which gives the purpose for us and those things. Clearly, however, Aquinas was more focused on the non-conscious, cognitively impotent, non-intelligent things in the world, which are operational and demonstrate purpose and intent. Right? He, he was thinking uh, of things that, that couldn't think, that couldn't constitute or, or construct an idea or a purpose. Um, though I think the argument rightly applies to us as well, as I just stated. But... Uh, this would, this would be why I use the arrow as an example. But I simply take it one step further and say even intelligence can't, cannot give itself an objectively true purpose. And even intelligence cannot have set intelligence itself into motion, i.e. to set the generational growth of humanity into motion would necessitate a causal explanation for the effect of humanity existing at all to procreate in the first place, right? Um, just because we could procreate that doesn't explain how we got here to procreate. It's kind of like the, the chicken and the egg problem. Now, I know I've barely, barely scratched the surface of some very deep philosophical issues in this brief summarial talk, but I, I think it should be painfully clear to all of you who are listening at home that there are some big questions which do need answering, and that is precisely the purpose and what we are seeking to do with Unobservable. 
I hope I've given you something to think about and I hope I've I've inspired some deep questions in you and I, I would love to see you back next week so we can continue this talk. I just want to say thank you for all of your support and God bless. See you again in a week.